Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and joining me here today is Mike Romanos, Imperial College London's Associate Dean for Enterprise and former founder of three biotech spinouts. So, Mike, can you tell us about your journey um, co founding and building three biotech spinouts and then becoming the Associate Dean for Enterprise? You know, Liv, as I think about that question, I, it makes me think more deeply and it, it reminds me that the journey actually started with my first chemistry set age seven when I developed a passion for science. And that continued and I always wanted to be in biotech, but that didn't happen till later. So most recently I founded three biotechs uh, and the latest one has been Microbiotica, a microbiome precision medicine spin-out out of the Sanger Institute, founded with two colleagues, one of them an old colleague from my time in my first job at Welcome Biotech. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I built and ran that for uh, six years, and that's after the one and a half years I took to spin it out. Um, we had tremendous success with an early uh, landmark deal with Genentech in the first 18 months, and most recently also with Merck. And last year I raised 50 million pounds to go into the clinic. And uh, after that, uh, I felt that I could move on and go back to Imperial College. So prior to that, my other companies were Crescendo Biologics, which mm -hmm. I uh, started when I left GSK um, in early 2009. A, uh, another platform company, this time antibody transgenics for fragments and multi-specific antibody fragments mm. from one of the key inventors in the field, Mariana Brueggemann at the Babram Institute. And... Um, Again, I, I built and ran it for six years, uh, built a remarkable platform and, and then passed it on and moved on. And that has a pipeline in uh, oncology now with several assets in the clinic. Um, one that was licensed for psoriasis to uh, um, Xilabs in China and has had a very successful phase 1B in patients and it could be transformational for psoriasis. So that's a great pleasure that uh, in that case, I built the platform, chose the target, and it's gone to uh, almost a POC already. The third company I founded was NKIO. And actually, it was from when I was advising at Imperial College, uh, after I uh, left Crescendo and started spinning up Microbiotic, I was advising there, and I came across this remarkable technology, and I eventually spun it out, actually in my spare time in 2020, as I was beginning the fundraise for Microbiotica. And I think it's a remarkable platform technology for NK cell therapy, which is a hot area. It's a newer, younger company, but I'm very excited about it. So before these companies, um, I was at GSK. Uh, in fact, I started in, a, in Welcome Biotech, which was a biotech company that eventually got wrapped into GSK, uh, working on genetic engineering and novel vaccines. And over time in Welcome, Glaxo Welcome and GSK as it went through mergers, I was running bigger and bigger organizations and actually mm -hmm. building them too. And they were always to do with platforms, molecular platforms mm. or genomics or therapeutic discovery platforms. Eventually I built and ran uh, an organization called Discovery Technology, which was 
300 people on six sites in three countries. We had all the genomic and functional genomic technologies and were mm. delivering data packages for new targets, new biomarkers, and for new clinical candidates. And in my time at GSK, I, I was involved in many other things like antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, um, really a number of areas sequentially with uh, assets that went into the clinic. At that time too, I also became very heavily involved in IP strategy. And for example, in the uh, GSK merger, I was co-leading the work group that defined the IP strategy for R&D in the combined company. So mm -hmm. uh, IP was very close to my heart. Now, more recently, uh, over time, I got involved in other things, and I got involved as a trustee and non-exec director of LifeArc, the biomedical charity. Mm. And one really exciting thing that I did was to be on the uh, team that monetized the royalties for Keytruda, which is a drug that LifeArc essentially created and that Merck, it's Merck's biggest selling drug. And we, uh, we sold the royalties to a Canadian pension fund for $1.3 billion. Yeah. And so that's come into LifeArc to enable it to be a really leading player in translation. So there's translation again. It's definitely a theme because I've worked at the interface between science and companies with LifeArc as well. Um, so uh, that's taken me to the present time to um, Imperial College. And in these three companies you mentioned, um, so they, they were all platform technologies and um, that kind of serves as a common thread. Um, why did you focus on platform technologies? Well, when I, um, going back a long way, when I went to university, I wanted to be a chemist, but I got a little bit bored of it and saw that molecular biology was mm. happening. And uh, so after I left Cambridge, I did a PhD in molecular bio biology at Imperial College. And that's what I wanted to do. It was just so exciting. And um, it had the hard science angle mm -hmm. to it, but with biology. But then it was also happening with companies and deals and, and things. And um, it's natural that when you work in molecular biology that you're interested in platforms because the new modalities yeah. are essentially platforms for drugs that depend on molecular biology rather than chemistry. Mm. But having said that, I've also been heavily involved in small molecule drug development. But that's really my interest in platforms. It started right from the beginning, and I got a chance to work on maybe a dozen of them in my career. And then when we talk about how you founded these three companies yeah. and took them to such success, I wonder if you could you know, shed some light on how one might actually found and, um, you know, start a biotech spin out? You know, firstly, I'm, I've been around a while and mm -hmm. I did this in one particular way. I went yeah. into deep science. I, I, un, I understood what there was in the science mm -hmm. and I built on that uh, and I built quite deep science companies, but there are lots of ways to do it. And when I get asked by people at the beginning of their career who want to leave straight from a PhD to build a company, which is something I wouldn't have done, yeah. I, I needed the, all that experience first. I'm not going to tell them don't do it that way because I think things are changing and there are more ways to do this now. So uh, the way I did it required 
having a really good experience and judgment of science so that when I spotted the opportunities, I thought this could be it. But at the same time, there's other factors involved in picking those opportunities. The academic founder is key. Mm. And do you trust this science? And is it a personality you can trust and work with? That is absolutely key. I mean, in my experience, particularly in my first industry experience, I learned about managing people and found out that I was good at it. Mm. And I didn't expect it because I had no interest before, but I was good at it. And I found that I had a strength in designing scientific strategies and designing teams to actually deliver those. So um, what was your question again? How, what, what advice would be to start companies? I think there are so many ways now. Yeah. But my way has been to find really exciting science and to be sure that it's exciting, to be sure that it's got good patent cover, yeah. that uh, other people also think it's exciting and that you have a colleague in academia that you can work with. That's for me has been key. And what's the number one thing to do if you are you know, CEO of a biotech company? Well, for the first thing is it, it actually takes a while to get there. And, and when I founded my companies, mm -hmm. I was a bit like an entrepreneur in residence for two of them, mm. especially Microbiotica, where they had something interesting, but were not getting traction with investments. So I went in unpaid, but I was doing other things. So I, I wasn't, uh, I was doing a number of things, but I spent time for over a year, maybe a year and a half at the Sanger Institute, understanding mm. the science, getting some patents filed, getting a business plan together, and, and then getting interest from investors. So, and then, mm. uh, and then um, negotiating the license agreement with the Sanger Institute, which wasn't easy. And it wasn't easy for Imperial College either. They were both very difficult. So then you're in the middle of, uh, uh, you're a key stakeholder in the middle of, you know, the investors, the academic institution, the academic, etc. So I'm not answering your question because that's before you've got the biotech. Yeah. And then you've got the biotech, you've spun out, and the people in the academic institution who, well, you've just been through a marathon with them, they think, great, it's done. Yeah. But it, it's not. That's the beginning of all the challenges. Yeah. You've got to build a top performing operational team. You've got to get the board working well. You've got to get space. You've got to get in particular certain key people you can rely mm. on, like in finance and, and operations. Um, you've got to start delivering to your business plan for the first milestone so you get your next tranche of money, which could be coming up in a year. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that can happen, and we did for Microbiotica, is you might want to consider adapting your business plan because you probably wrote it a while before. It took a long time to spin out. Mm. Uh, and you, it might need adapting. And you might need to adapt it in the short term and the long term. So those are all the things you need. But as soon as the company's formed, you've got to start delivering and making it work while at the same time thinking about, is it still the right plan? Are the patents good? Do we yeah. need to work on them? There's 101 things. And for someone who's managed 300 people to mm -hmm. then be managing initially two, mm. you, you, you're thrown right into managing much more yourself. Yeah. Uh, and for the investors, 
that's a risk when they get someone from Big Pharma who's managed big organizations. Mm. They wonder, can they still do that? Well, I could, and I quite enjoyed it, but it was a bit of a shock to begin. Yeah, because I guess um, in a big corporate company, a lot of the processes, documentation, all of these things have already been done for you. And you kind of are just like, hey, give me this thing, right? Well, you don't have to fundraise. You do have to sell what yeah. you're doing so you keep getting the money. So you do mm. have that selling element. You do have the management. But yeah, you're right. Many of these things, are, are you have an organization in place, essentially. Although with the organizations I ran, I usually started off by building them, even to the international scale. But still, I was able to use the resources in GSK to get top people mm. and build those very effective organizations quickly. And that was a massive learning and um, it, it's phenomenal training. And it's a shame there's less of it now because there are fewer pharma companies, especially in the UK. I see. And then what do you think is the number one thing not to do as a biotech CEO? And can you give an example of you know, when this happened to you and how you learned from it? Oh my goodness. Well, I think there are learnings. I wouldn't say not to do, but let me give you some of the learnings I've had. So with my first company, Crescendo Biologics, um, I came into it after the investor had decided to invest in it. So it was a slightly different start, but essentially I built the business plan, I got more money and I built the whole team. So I built the company. But the investment syndicate mm. for that um, of four investors had three seed investors who would never have the, the funds to continue to the next round of financing. Only one could. The result is that um, a few years later when we needed to raise 20 million, I had to rebuild the syndicate and bring in new investors. Mm. And it can be harder at that moment because there's more ability to believe the vision at the beginning than a yeah. few years in when they're looking for the hard data. As it happened also, when I rebuilt that syndicate in 2013 and raised 20 million, it was a tough time to raise money. Mm. And in that sector of antibody fragments, most of the companies were ahead of us. We thought we had the best technology, but a lot of the investors had placed their bets in the other companies already. So mm. whatever they thought of us, they were not gonna, many of them not going to invest in us. So that's the dilemma if you don't have the full firepower of investors at the outset. The other learning from that one is that, well, we didn't have an academic founder available to us. And I had to found ways, find ways to build a platform because it wasn't built at all. Mm. by hook or by crook, working with whatever academic groups around the world I could find. And uh, I kept the investors informed of how long that would take. And we delivered on time, but there was investor fatigue for how yeah. long it took that to build that platform. So those were two key learnings from that one. Um, in contrast with Microbiotica, yeah. I had two strong investors, IP Group and Cambridge Innovation Capital, and more who wanted to come in. And they came in a bit later. And then um, a really well-known academic in the field from the Sanger Institute, mm -hmm. and another founder who was my colleague from old days in Welcome Biotech, who brought us together, who was 
very well known in the field. He got the Albert Sabin gold medal in uh, vaccines in 2020. And having that uh, reputation, scientific reputation behind you was incredibly important and valuable. Mm. Um, there were other things, you know, the platform from the Sanger wasn't ready. We had to adapt the, the business plan because it got outdated by the time we got to form the company. I think what, what must you not do? I think that the things I felt I had control with of, I don't think I recognized an actual mistake because I sweated over them for so long. Yeah. The biggest one is your first three hires. If you get that wrong, one of those key hires wrong, they will not then be able to hire the people of the quality that you want. The quality of your whole company is dependent on the first people. Now mm -hmm. that I understood from creating organizations during the mergers at GSK. I always created top quality organizations. I had the choice to yeah. pick my people and I held out for very high standards because I knew the standards of your leaders reporting to you yeah. determined the quality of the entire organization. That is an enormously important uh, mm. decision. And I've never taken it lightly. And, it, and, I, and many other CEOs have said the same thing. Um, you know, I can't think out and out of any real mistakes that I've learned to not do. I agreed to do a, a very major collaboration with Genentech mm. nine months into Microbiotica, which was an enormous risk for a company with big ambitions that it might get swallowed up and distracted. Mm. But we couldn't turn down a landmark collaboration with Genentech, which was signed in the 18th month. Mm. So I wouldn't say it was a mistake and it galvanized us, but it brought a lot of challenge. Mm. Our platform wasn't really up to it when we signed, but we got it up to it yeah. in time to deliver. Why, why do you think it's so difficult for academics today to spin out companies? I think a spin out is a very difficult thing to do unless everything is perfect. And I think often experienced CEOs don't want to do that early stage. Mm. Uh, because if they can go to a later stage when these messy problems with does the technology work, is the team okay, have you reached escape velocity that people will support you enough that you can build up a team and therefore raise the next finance and mm. get to the clinic. Those are messy early stages and it would be easier to come in and take leadership of a company that is just about to go in the clinic and you play it out. And yeah. if it plays out well, you make a bomb. But, um, you know, those are plum opportunities and they go to uh, very experienced people. And I've, because of where I'm coming from, I've always been very excited by the early science and got into that. And it's mm. messy and difficult. Um, it, it's not just difficult for the academics, it's difficult mm. for everybody. It's difficult for investors to identify those opportunities, but then they have choice. So if they go to good institutions, it's more difficult to make a bad bet. And it's quite difficult to know all the risks when they make their decision. For an academic, they've got to decide. I mean, with Trevor Lawley, he had to decide, will he hitch up with me as his entrepreneur? Because once we're like that, mm. you know, we're committed to each other. And that is a very important decision. Um, he had to trust my judgment on which science to do, which not to do, what patents to file, because coming in early, 
I was helping him actually even with science strategy that leads to commercialization. And that is the difficult thing. The big barriers are, do they have an invention which is applicable? Mm -hmm. And is there a need for it? And another big one is, have they done enough to show that it works? Because there's a yeah. funding gap. And this is a critical deficiency in the whole system, which everyone is trying to address. And we're trying to do this at Imperial College now. It's one of the key things I'm involved with. How can you fund that last bit of work that will make this yeah. really fundable as a startup and actually lead to a higher valuation as well? But uh, let's, let's talk about the funding, right? Yeah. Because um, in the UK, a lot of academic institutions take um, equity within these spin-outs. And um, if you end up with a bad deal and you know the institution takes too much equity, then you become pretty unfundable, right, in the later stages because investors know there's going to be 10 rounds down the line. So if the university is taking a high equity percentage, um, it does disincentivize people from spinning Well, out. I think there are two separate things here. Mm -hmm. One is um, when you get to that point where you have all the IP that you want to license yeah. and you've negotiated um, license terms, and nowadays those include uh, royalties and milestones. It used to be just equity, but nowadays it's mm -hmm. like that. So it's quite a complex package. And from that package, the, usually the entrepreneur has, or if there isn't the entrepreneur, then it may be someone from the uh, VCs, plays a central role in negotiating between the investors, the academic, and the institution on what is the pre-money valuation. So the investors say, right, mm. we'll license all this, and we'll say it's worth £5 million. And we're going to put in £10 million, so then the value of the company immediately after investment is 15 and the institution gets a third of it. So that negotiation is a negotiation and there's nothing fixed about it. It's just mm -hmm. dependent on what they're prepared to pay. I think what's in the news at the moment is of that third that goes to the academic institution, how much goes to the founders and how much stays with the academic institution. Mm. And it matters less to investors. You know, the key thing for them is how much of a percentage are they getting? Now, they don't want to see the academic founders squashed and getting of the bit that, say, goes to Imperial College only getting 50%, and that's how it was. Mm. But they don't care as much. I think the issue is, for academics, they're incentivized and, and measured by their publications. Why should they spend their time creating a spin-out? And their lives will be much harder. Yeah. If they're only going to get 50% of the value that goes to the college, um, and I think 50% is wrong, and it's very much in the news, but you know what? We've moved on from that. No mm. academic institution takes 50% now. The average is probably, it's between in a range of 10 to 30 already. Yeah. And there's talk everywhere about reducing it to quite a low level. And I think many institutions are going to 20 or less. Yeah. And we, we're doing that at Imperial College too. But that relates to the bit that the college retains. And it's less of an issue for the investors. I think it's an important question. But what's in the news is already quite substantially yeah. sorted out. 
However, the, the overall spin out, spin out terms and the process of negotiating and everything has been very difficult. And all the universities have come together to try to design a process which is simpler, more standard, mm. less greedy, um, and hopefully easier to do. But that's only one bottleneck. The other bottleneck is, is the science ready to spin out? Is there, has there been enough funding? And everyone's trying to find money to do that little bit yeah. of extra work just beforehand. Is there an entrepreneur? And is there early stage investment? And has the IP package been good? Mm. And I guess that brings us on to, you know, your role currently at Imperial, um, which I find very interesting because I don't really see, you know, three times successful entrepreneurs becoming, um, you know, you know, dean for enterprise at, 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 in universities. Um, often it's, you know, if you can't, you teach, right? Um, but in this case, um, you obviously can. Well, you know, yeah. I, I think... Um... Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing when you've mm. been through so yeah. much experience. And I've worked in charity with LifeArc mm -hmm. as a, a venture partner with investment, biotech, pharma. Yeah, and you know I've done a lot of it. Mm. And so there's a question of how much more did I want to do? Yeah, and with Microbiotica in particular, I raised a lot of money. And it was going to go to the clinic, but I, I reasoned that um, it probably would need another raise to have the next round of clinical trials. And was I wanting to do that too? It would be another mm. long run at it. And I've now been doing that for a while. So <laughs> I've, I've, um, you could yeah. say it's a final part of my career. When I go back, um, I have shares, I have pensions, and mm. um, I can... I'm just so motivated, having had a period where I advised Imperial College and talked to 70 PIs, and I mm. saw the untapped potential in biosciences in that college, which is one of the world's top six universities. Yeah. Um, it could be like an MIT. It could have more bioscience startups. Mm. And I think I can make the difference there uh, or help make the difference. Yeah. Uh, and so that motivates me and excites me a lot. And I love doing it. I love talking to the academics about their inventions, advising them on a personal level. It's quite similar to spinning out the three companies because that's what I did. Yeah. And now you get... And so I've, been, I've always been close <laughs> to those kinds of people and able to bridge the mm -hmm. science to the commercial. And now I can also do it at the strategic level by designing spin out terms. We're talking about you mm. know, whether we might set up a VC fund for the college uh, funding for yeah. that last bit of research. So to help the whole ecosystem and raise the game, it's very motivating. And so what's the number one impact you want to leave on the world, you know, <laughs> with your current role at Imperial? Well, I, I see all of that as part of a longer term impact and part of what, um, part of an impact and legacy I really, uh, um, very satisfied with is, is the people I've managed or mentored or given space to so many of them. I've managed maybe a thousand. Mm. Many have surpassed what I've done and had wonderful careers. And that for me is a very great source of pleasure and satisfaction. And, um, and that network that I have and can call upon in terms of the three companies, 
um, you know, they're all going to play out in the clinic. And so they have mm -hmm. the opportunity to turn yeah. new technologies into transformational medicines. Why I was so delighted with the Xylab's results with the Crescendo IL-17 molecule for psoriasis, topical monoclonal antibody type for mm -hmm. psoriasis, um, because that, that is playing out as a new drug which could be transformational, but Crescendo has other drugs in oncology. Um, Microbiotica has some very important clinical studies which could be very important for patients. Mm. One of them in immuno-oncology collaborating with Merck. They're gonna play out in coming years. And NKIO2 uh, with our first trials likely to be in ovarian cancer. So obviously those are going to be very important as I see them play out. The technologies mm -hmm. have, but it takes a while for the drugs. There are drugs from, uh, that I have impacted earlier at GSK, but they're in a bigger pot with many other contributors. Yeah. At Imperial College, um, I, I love doing the same thing, which is advising academics. It's very similar to what I've done starting companies like an entrepreneur mm. in residence, mentoring them, helping them to achieve the most from their science and getting involved in those discussions. It's a great source of pleasure. And I want to see more spin outs, more commercialization. Um, and I want to help change the ecosystem and just raise the game at Imperial College in biomedicine. And I think I have a fair shot at that with my role.